Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. We're continuing with The Wretched of the Earth, and a chapter on the psychological effect of revolution, specifically with individual case studies of people, and talking about what they went through, how it affected them, the kind of diagnosis process even. So, some heavy content warnings for this episode, in general for mental health and trauma, but in particular, some content warnings for the individual cases are... From Series B, Case 1 features child violence and murder. Case 3 features torture. Series C as a whole is about torture and the effects of torture on people. With Category 1 featuring violence and bodily violation. Category 3 features medical malpractice, involuntary drugging and gaslighting. And Category 4 features brainwashing and gaslighting again. If you check the description of this episode, you will see timestamps that indicate where each of the cases start in case you want to jump past any particular case. So let's get started. Series B. We have here brought together certain cases or groups of cases in which the event giving rise to the illness is in the first place the atmosphere of total war which reigns in Algeria. Case number one. The murder by two young Algerians, 13 and 14 years old respectively, of their European playmate. We had been asked to give expert medical advice in a legal matter. Two young Algerians, 13 and 14 years old, pupils in a primary school, were accused of having killed one of their European schoolmates. They admitted having done it. The crime was reconstructed, and photos were added to the record. Here, one of the children could be seen holding the victim while the other struck at him with a knife. The little defendants did not go back on their declarations. We had long conversations with them. We here reproduce the most characteristic of their remarks. A. The boy 13 years old. Quote, We weren't a bit cross with him. Every Thursday, we used to go and play with catapults together, on the hill above the village. He was a good friend of ours. He usedn't to go to school anymore because he wanted to be a mason like his father. One day we decided to kill him, because the Europeans want to kill all the Arabs. We can't kill big people, but we could kill ones like him, because he was the same age as us. We didn't know how to kill him. We wanted to throw him into a ditch, but he'd only have been hurt. So we got the knife from home and we killed him. But why did you pick on him? Because he used to play with us. Another boy wouldn't have gone up the hill with us. And yet you are pals? Well then, why do they want to kill us? His father is in the militia, and he said we ought to have our throats cut. But he didn't say anything to you? Him? No. You know he is dead now. Yes. What does being dead mean? When it's all finished, you go to heaven. Was it you that killed him? Yes. Does having killed somebody worry you? No, since they want to kill us, so... Do you mind being in prison? No. End quote. B. The boy 14 years old. The young defendant was in marked contrast to his schoolfellow. He was already almost a man, and an adult in his muscular control, his appearance, and the content of his replies. He did not deny having killed either. Why had he killed? He did not reply to the question, but asked me, had I ever seen a European in prison? 
Had there ever been a European arrested and sent to prison after the murder of an Algerian? I replied that in fact I had never seen any Europeans in prison. Quote, And yet there are Algerians killed every day, aren't there? Yes. So why are only Algerians found in the prisons? Can you explain that to me? No, but tell me why you killed this boy who was your friend. I'll tell you why. You've heard tell of the rivet business? Footnote 1. Yes. Two of my family were killed then. At home they said that the French had sworn to kill us all, one after the other. And did they arrest a single Frenchman for all those Algerians who were killed? I don't know. Well, nobody at all was arrested. I wanted to take to the mountains, but I was too young. So X and I said we'd kill a European. Why? In your opinion, what should we have done? I don't know, but you are a child, and what is happening concerns grown-up people. But they kill children, too. That is no reason for killing your friend. Well, kill him I did. Now you can go do what you like. Had your friend done anything to harm you? Not a thing. Well? Well, there you are. Well, there you are. End quote. Case number two. Accusatory delirium and suicidal conduct disguised as terrorist activity in a young Algerian, 22 years old. This patient was sent to our hospital by the French judicial authorities. This measure was taken after medical and legal advice given by French psychiatrists practicing in Algeria. The patient was an emaciated man in a complete state of aberration. His body was covered with bruises, and two fractures of the jaw made all absorption of nourishment impossible. Thus, for more than two weeks, the patient was fed by various injections. After two weeks, the blank in his thoughts receded. We were able to establish contact, and we managed to reconstruct the dramatic history of this young man. During his youth, he went in for scouting with unusual enthusiasm. He became one of the main leaders of the Muslim scout movement, but when he was 19 years old, he dropped scouting completely in order to have no preoccupation other than his profession. He was a multi-copying machine maker. He studied hard and dreamt of being a great specialist in his profession. The 1st of November, 1954, found him absorbed by strictly professional problems. At the time, he showed no interest at all in the national struggle. Already, he no longer frequented the company of his former companions. He defined himself at that time as completely bent on increasing his technical capacity. However, about the middle of 1955, when spending the evening with his family, he suddenly had the impression that his parents considered him a traitor. After a few days, this fleeting impression became blunted, but at the back of his mind, a certain misgiving persisted. A sort of uneasiness that he did not understand. On account of this, he decided to eat his meals quickly, shrinking from the family circle, and shut himself into his room. He avoided all contacts. It was in these conditions that catastrophe intervened. One day, in the middle of the street, at about half past twelve, he distinctly heard a voice calling him a coward. He turned around, but saw nobody. He quickened his pace, and decided that from then on, he would not go to work. He stayed in his room and did not eat any dinner. During the night, the crisis came on. For three hours, he heard all sorts of insults coming from out of the night and resounding in his head. 
Traitor, traitor, coward. All your brothers who are dying. Traitor, traitor. He was seized with indescribable anxiety. For 18 hours, my heart beat at the rhythm of 130 pulsations to the minute. I thought I was going to die. From that time on, the patient could no longer swallow a bite. He wasted away almost visibly. He shut himself up in complete darkness and refused to open the door to his parents. Around the third day, he took refuge in prayer. He stayed kneeling, he told me, from 17 to 18 hours on end each day. On the fourth day, acting on impulse, like a madman, with a beard that was also enough to make him be taken for a madman, wearing neither coat nor tie, he went out into the town. Once in the street, he did not know where to go, but he started walking, and at the end of some time, he found himself in the European town. His physical appearance, he looked like a European, seemed then to safeguard him against being stopped and questioned by the police patrols. As a contrast to this, beside him, Algerian men and women were arrested, maltreated, insulted, and searched. Paradoxically, he had no papers on him. This uncalled-for consideration toward him on the part of the enemy patrols confirmed his delusion that everybody knew he was with the French. Even the soldiers had their orders. They left him alone. In addition, the glances of the arrested Algerians, who were waiting to be searched with their hands behind their necks, seemed to him to be full of contempt. The prey of overwhelming agitation, he moved away, striding rapidly. It was at this moment that he happened to walk in front of the building which was the French staff headquarters. In the gateway stood several soldiers armed with machine guns. He went toward the soldiers, threw himself upon one of them and tried to snatch his machine gun, shouting, I am an Algerian. He was quickly overcome and was brought to the police, where they insisted on making him confess the names of his superiors and the different members of the network to which he, supposedly, belonged. After some days, the police and the soldiers realized that they were dealing with a sick man. An expert opinion was sought which concluded that he was suffering from mental disorders and that he should be sent to the hospital. Quote, All I wanted to do, he said, was to die. Even at the police barracks, I thought and hoped that after they'd tortured me, they would kill me. I was glad to be struck, for that showed me that they considered that I too was their enemy. I could no longer go on hearing those accusing voices without doing something. I am not a coward. I am not a woman. I am not a traitor. End quote. Footnote 2. Case 3. Neurotic attitude of a young Frenchwoman whose father, a highly placed civil servant, was killed in an ambush. This girl, 21 years old, a student, came to consult me about certain minor symptoms of anxiety complex which interfered with her studies and with her social relationships. Her hands were constantly moist and at times presented very worrying symptoms when sweat flowed all over her hands. Constrictions of the chest accompanied by nocturnal headaches bit her nails, but the thing that was most apparent was, above all, the over-easy contact obviously too rapid, while a severe anxiety could be clearly sensed underlying the facile approach. The death of her father, though judging from the date fairly recent, was mentioned by the patient with such light-heartedness that we quickly directed our investigations toward her relations with her father. The account which she gave us was clear, 
completely lucid, with a lucidity which touched on insensibility and later revealed, precisely by its rationalism, this girl's uneasiness and the nature and origin of her conflict. Quote, My father was highly placed in the civil service. He was responsible for a very large rural area. As soon as the trouble started, he threw himself into the Algerian manhunt with frenzied rage. Sometimes it happened that he would eat nothing at all and not even sleep. He was in such a state of excitement over putting down the rebellion. I saw without being able to do anything about it, the slow metamorphosis of my father. Finally, I decided not to go to see him anymore and to stay in town. The fact was that every time I went home, I spent entire nights awake, for screams used to rise up to my room from down below. In the cellar and in the unused rooms of the house, Algerians were being tortured so as to obtain information. You have no idea how terrible it is to hear screaming all night like that. Sometimes, I used to wonder how it was that a human being was able to bear hearing those screams of pain, quite apart from the actual torture. And so it went on. Finally, I didn't ever go home. The rare times that my father came to see me in town, I wasn't able to look him in the face without being terribly frightened and embarrassed. I found it increasingly difficult to force myself to kiss him. For you must understand that I had lived a long time in the village. I knew almost all the families that lived there. The Algerian boys of my age and I had played together when we were small. Every time I went home, my father told me what fresh people had been arrested. In the end, I didn't dare walk in the street anymore. I was so <laughs> I was so sure of meeting hatred everywhere. In my heart, I knew that those Algerians were right. If I were an Algerian girl, I'd be in the McKee. End quote. One day, however, she received a telegram which announced that her father was seriously injured. She went to the hospital and found her father in a coma. Shortly afterward, he died. He had been wounded while on a reconnoitering expedition with a military detachment. The patrol fell into an ambush laid by the Algerian National Army. Quote, The funeral sickened me, she said. All those officials who came to weep over the death of my father, whose high moral qualities conquered the native population, disgusted me. Everyone knew that it was false. There wasn't a single person who didn't know that my father had the whip hand of all the interrogation centers in the whole region. Everyone knew that the number of deaths under torture reached 10 a day. And there they came to tell their lies about my father's devotion, his self-sacrifice, his love for his country, and so on. I ought to say that now, such words have no meaning for me, or at any rate, hardly any. I went back to the town directly afterwards, and I avoided all the authorities. They offered me an allowance, but I refused it. I don't want their money. It is the price of the blood spilt by my father. I don't want any of it. I am going to work. End quote. Case 4. Behavior Disturbances in Young Algerians Under 10 these children were refugees, the children of fighting men or of civilians killed by the French. They were sent to various different centres in Tunisia and Morocco. These children were sent to school, and games and outings were organised for them. They were examined regularly by doctors. That is how we came to have occasion to see some of them. A. In each of these different children there exists a very marked love for parental images. Each which resembles a father or a mother is sought out with the greatest tenacity and jealously guarded. 
B. Generally speaking, they all have a noise phobia, which is very noticeable. These children are very much affected when they are scolded. They have a great thirst for peace and for affection. C. Many of them suffer from sleeplessness and also from sleepwalking. D. Periodical enuresis. E. Sadistic tendencies. A game that is often played is to stretch a sheet of paper and feverishly poke holes in it. All their pencils are chewed and their nails bitten with distressing regularity. They quarrel frequently among themselves, despite a deep fundamental affection. Case 5. Puerperal psychoses among the refugees. The name puerperal psychoses is given to mental disorders which occur in women around childbirth. Such disorders may appear immediately before or some weeks after giving birth. The determinism of such illnesses is very complex, but it is considered that the principal causes are the upsetting or the functioning of the endocrine glands and the existence of an affective shock. The latter heading, though vague, covers what most people refer to as violent emotion. On the Moroccan and Tunisian frontiers, there are to be found something like 300,000 refugees since the decision of the French government to practice their burnt earth policy over hundreds of kilometers. The destitution in which they exist is well known. International Red Cross committees have repeatedly paid visit to these places and, after having observed the extreme poverty and precariousness of living conditions, they have recommended increased aid to these refugees from international organizations. It was thus only to be expected, considering the undernourishment which is rife in these camps, that pregnant women there should show particular propensation for the development of pure peril psychoses. The atmosphere of permanent insecurity in which the refugees exist is kept up by frequent invasions of French troops, applying the right of following and pursuit, bombardments from the air, machine gunnings. It is well known that no further attention is now paid to bombardments of Moroccan and Tunisian territories by the French army, of which Sakiet Sidi Youssef, the martyred village in Tunisia, was the most appalling, together with the breakup of homes, which is a consequence of the conditions of the evacuation. To tell the truth, there are very few Algerian women who give birth in such conditions who do not suffer from mental disorders. These disorders take various forms. Sometimes they are visible as states of agitation, which sometimes turn into rages. Sometimes deep depression and tonic immobility with many attempted suicides, or sometimes finally anxiety states with tears, lamentations, and appeals for mercy. In the same way, the form which the delusions take are many and diverse. We may find a delusion of persecution against the French who want to kill the newborn infant or the child not yet born, or else the mother may have the impression of imminent death in which the mothers implore invisible executioners to spare their child. Here, once more, we must point out that the fundamental nature of these problems is not cleared up by the regression and soothing of the disorders. The circumstances of the cured patient maintains and feeds these pathological kinks. Series C. Affective intellectual modifications and mental disorders after torture. In this series, we will group together patients in a fairly serious condition whose disorders appeared immediately after or during the tortures. 
We shall describe various different groups in this category because we realize that the characteristic morbidity groups correspond to different methods of torture employed, quite independently of its evil effects, whether glaring or hidden, upon the personality. Category number one, after so-called preventative tortures of an indiscriminate nature. We here refer to brutal methods which are directed toward getting prisoners to speak, rather than to actual torture. The principle that over and above a certain threshold pain becomes intolerable here takes on singular importance. The aim is to arrive as quickly as possible at that threshold. There is no finicking about. There is a mass attack taking several forms. Several policemen striking the prisoner at the same time. Four policemen standing around the prisoner and hitting him backward and forward to each other, while another burns his chest with a cigarette and still another hits the soles of his feet with a stick. Certain methods of torture used in Algeria seemed to us to be particularly atrocious. The confidences of those who had been tortured are our reference. A. Injection of water by the mouth accompanied by an enema of soapy water given at high pressure. Footnote 3. B. Introduction of a bottle into the anus. Two forms of torture called motionless torture. C. The prisoner is placed on his knees with his arms parallel to the ground, the palms of his hands turned upward, his torso and head straight. No movement is allowed. Behind the prisoner, a policeman sitting on a chair keeps him motionless by blows of his truncheon. D. The prisoner is placed standing with his face to the wall. His arms are lifted and his hands against the wall. Here too, if he makes the slightest movement or shows the slightest sign of relaxing, the blows rain down. We must now point out that there are two categories of people who undergo torture. One, those who know something, and two, those who know nothing. One, those who know something are very rarely seen in hospital centres. Evidently, it may be common knowledge that such and such a patriot has been tortured in the French prisons, but you never meet him as a patient. Footnote 4. 2. On the contrary, those who know nothing come very frequently to consult us. We are not here speaking of Algerians taken prisoner during a general arresting or a roundup. They do not come to see us as patients either. We are speaking expressly of those Algerians who do not belong to any organization, who are arrested and brought to police quarters or to farms used as centers of interrogation in order to be tortured there. Symptoms of psychiatric cases encountered. A. Agitated nervous depressions. Four cases. There are patients who are sad, without really being anxious. They are depressed, and spend most of their time in bed. They shun contact, and are liable to suddenly show signs of very violent agitation, the significance of which is always difficult to grasp. B. Loss of appetite arising from mental causes. Five cases. These patients present serious problems, for every mental anorexia is accompanied by a phobia against all physical contact with another. The nurse who comes near the patient and tries to touch him, to take his hand for example, is at once pushed stiffly away. It is not possible to carry out artificial feeding or to administer medicine. Footnote 5. C. Motor instability. 11 cases. Here we have to deal with patients who will not keep still. They insist on being alone and it is difficult to get them to allow themselves to be shut up with the doctor in his consulting room. Two feelings seem to us to be frequent in the first category of tortured people. First, that of suffering injustice. 
being tortured night and day for nothing seemed to have broken something in these men. One of these sufferers had a particularly painful experience. After some days of useless torturing, the police came to realize that they were dealing with a peaceable man who knew nothing whatever about anybody in an FLN network. In spite of being convinced of this, a police inspector had said, Don't let him go like that. Give him a bit more, so that when he gets out he'll keep quiet. Footnote 6. Secondly, there was indifference to all moral arguments. For these patients, there is no just cause. A cause which entrains torture is a weak cause. Therefore, the fighting strength of the cause must at all costs be increased. Its justness must not be questioned. Force is the only thing that counts. Category number two. After tortures by electricity. In this category, we have placed the Algerian patriots who were mainly tortured by electricity. In fact, although previously electricity was used as one of the general methods of torture, from September 1956 on, certain questionings were carried on exclusively by electricity. Descriptions of psychiatric cases encountered. A. Localized or generalized onestopathies. Three cases. These patients felt pins and needles throughout their bodies. Their hands seemed to be torn off, their heads seemed to be bursting, and their tongues felt as if they were being swallowed. B. Apathy, abulia, and lack of interest. Seven cases. These are patients who are inert, who cannot make plans, who have no resources, who live from day to day. C. Electricity phobia. Fear of touching a switch, of turning on the radio, fear of the telephone. Completely impossible for the doctor to even mention the eventual possibility of electric shock treatment. Category number three. After the truth serum. The basic principles of this treatment are well known. When dealing with a patient who seems to suffer from an unconscious inner conflict which consultations do not manage to externalize, the doctor has recourse to chemical methods of exploration. Pentothal, given by intravenous injections, is the most common serum used to liberate the patient from a conflict which seems to go beyond his powers of adaptation. The doctor intervenes in order to liberate the patient from this foreign body. Footnote 7. It has been generally observed that it is difficult to control the progressive disintegration of physical processes when using this method. Very often, a spectacular worsening of the illness was observed, or new and quite inexplicable symptoms appeared. Thus, generally speaking, this technique has been more or less abandoned. In Algeria, military doctors and psychiatrists have found a wide field for experimentation in police quarters. For if in cases of neuroses, pentothal sweeps away the barriers which bar the way to bringing to light an interior conflict, it ought equally, in the case of Algerian patriots, to serve to break down the political barrier and make confession easier for the prisoner without having recourse to electricity. Medical tradition lays down that suffering should be avoided. This is the medical form that subversive war takes. The scenario is as follows. First, I am a doctor. I am not a policeman. I am here to help you. In this way, after a few days, the confidence of the prisoner is won. Footnote 8. After that, I am going to give you a few injections, for you are badly shaken. For a few days, treatment of any kind at all is given. Vitamins, treatment for heart disease, sugar serums... On the fourth or fifth day, the intravenous injection of pentothal is given. 
the interrogation begins. Psychiatric symptoms. A. Verbal stereotypy. The patient continually repeats sentences of the type of, I didn't tell them anything. You must believe me. I didn't talk. Such stereotypies are accompanied by a permanent anxiety state. In fact, the patient does not even know whether he has given any information away. The sense of culpability toward the cause he was fighting for, and his brothers in arms whose names and addresses he may have given here, weighs so heavily as to be dramatic. No assurance can bring peace to these broken consciences. B. Intellectual or sensory perception clouded. The patient cannot affirm the existence of a given visible object. Reasoning is assimilated, but in undifferentiated fashion. There is a fundamental inability to distinguish between true and false. Everything is true and everything is false at the same time. C. Fear, amounting to phobia, of all private conversations. This fear is derived from the acute impression that at any moment a fresh interrogation may take place. D. Inhibition. The patient is on his guard. He registers every word of the question that is put to him and elaborates every word of his projected reply. From this comes the impression of a quasi-inhibition, with psychical slowing down, interrupted sentences, repetition, and faltering, etc. It is obvious that these patients obstinately refuse all intravenous injections. Category number four, after brainwashing. Recently, much has been said about psychological action in Algeria. We do not wish to proceed to a critical study of these methods. We are content to bring to mind here their psychiatric consequences. There are two categories of centers where torture by brainwashing is carried out in Algeria. One, for intellectuals. The principle here is to lead the prisoner on to play a part. We can see that this is a throwback to a particular school of psychosociology. Footnote 9. A. Playing the game of collaboration. The intellectual is invited to collaborate and at the same time reasons for collaboration are brought forward. He is thus obliged to lead a double life. He is a man well known for his patriotism, who is imprisoned for preventative reasons. The task undertaken is to attack from the inside those elements which constitute national consciousness. Not only is the intellectual in question expected to collaborate, but he is given orders to discuss matters freely with those opposed to his viewpoint or those who hold back and to convince him. This is an elegant way of bringing him to focus attention on other patriots, and thus to serve as informer. If by chance he says that he cannot find any opponents, these latter are pointed out to him, or else he is told to behave as if he was dealing with such. B making public statements on the value of the French heritage and on the merits of colonization. In order to carry out this task as well as possible, the intellectual is surrounded by political advisors, officers for native affairs, or, better still, psychologists, social psychiatrists, sociologists, etc. C. Taking the arguments for the Algerian revolution and overthrowing them one by one. Algeria is not a nation. It has never been a nation. It will never be a nation. There is no such thing as the Algerian people. Algerian patriotism is nonsense. The Felagas are ambitious peasants, criminals, and poor mistaken creatures. Taking each theme in turn, the intellectual is expected to make a reasoned statement on it, and the statements must be convincing. Marx, 
The well-known rewards are given and counted up at the end of every month. They serve as a means of deciding whether or not the intellectual will be allowed out. D. Leading a totally pathological communal life. To be alone is an act of rebellion, so the intellectual is always with somebody. Silence is also forbidden. Thinking must be done aloud. Evidence of brainwashing. The case was that of a person with a university education who was interned and subjected to brainwashing which lasted for months on end. One day, the camp officials congratulated him on the progress he had made and announced that he would soon be set free. He knew about the enemy's maneuvers and took care not to take this news too seriously. Their technique was in fact to announce to the prisoners that they were going to be freed and then a few days before the date fixed to organize a meeting in which collective criticisms are made. At the end of the meeting, the decision is often taken to postpone setting the prisoner free, since he does not seem to present all the signs of a definitive cure. The meeting, say those psychologists who are present at it, has served to draw attention to the nationalistic virus. However, this time, there was no subterfuge. The prisoner was freed for good and all. Once outside, in his own town and with his own family, the former prisoner congratulated himself on having played his part so well. He rejoiced that he was able to take his place once again in the national conflict and began to establish contact with his leaders. It was at that moment that a terrible burning doubt flashed through his mind. Perhaps he had never deceived anybody. Neither his jailers nor his fellow prisoners, nor even himself. Where would the game end? Here, once again, we had to reassure the patient, and to free him from the burdens of guilt. Psychiatric symptoms encountered. A. Phobia of all collective discussion. As soon as three or four people come together, the inhibition made its appearance again, and mistrust and reticence weighed heavily upon those present. B. The impossibility of explaining and defending any given position. Thought proceeds by antithetic couplings. Everything that is affirmed can, at the same instant, be denied with the same force. This is certainly the most painful sequel that we encountered in this war. An obsessional personality is the fruit of the psychological action used in the service of colonialism in Algeria. 2. For non-intellectuals. In centres such as that of Berugia, subjectivity is not taken as the starting point for modifying the attitude of the individual. On the contrary, the body is dealt with. It is broken in the hope that national consciousness will thus be demolished. It is a thorough breaking in. Rewards are taken to mean the absence of torture, or the possibility of getting food to eat. A. You must declare that you do not belong to the FLN. You must shout this out in groups. You must repeat it for hours on end. B. After that, you must recognize that you were once in the FLN, and that you have come to realize that it was a bad thing. Thus, down with the FLN. After this stage, we come to another. The future of Algeria is French. It can be nothing other than French. Without France, Algeria will go back to the Middle Ages. Finally, you are French. Long live France. Here, the disorders met with are not serious. It is the painful, suffering body that calls for rest and peace. And that's going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. 
This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening, and keep reading. <laughs>